0: hello everyone and welcome to teach me something the podcast where i learn about anything i want usually i have a question sometimes it's general wonders and then you know learn about it and tell you the best stuff, not the boring stuff. Good. Yeah. I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: So, um, I do believe this is not the first time I've expressed uh, interest or fascination with the topic of parasites.
1: This That's is true. true.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, not the first time. Gonna do it again now.
1: Okay. Round two?
0: Uh, um, or three? Two? Two? It- well, it's definitely more than two because okay. because we talked about a lot of parasites with the mosquito thing. That's true. We talked about toxoplasmosis. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing this is the third time I've talked about parasites as a whole episode well, or a large part of an episode. Um, okay.
1: Well, it's in like 5%-ish of the episode, so that's not I bad. I think
0: I've still mentioned them in lots of other episodes. Okay. In passing. Yeah. Maybe. I like them. Excellent. So... Um, this episode, this one, is specifically about parasites that can change the host's behaviors mm-hmm. to benefit them. Um, and there are some parasites that kind of change their visual appearance as well, but I'm not going to talk about that. Like much. the host's
1: visual appearance. Y- yeah. Okay.
0: Well, yes, correct. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that much. I want to stick to the behavior stuff, but there's like one or two examples of that. Um, And also parasitoids are a big part of this episode, which is a slightly different thing than parasite.
1: Okay. I can't say I'm actually familiar with this term, parasitoids.
0: I'll bring it up later, but basically when you're a parasite, you don't want to kill your host. True. At least not... Quickly. Yet. (laughs) Yeah. Um, right, but parasitoids necessarily have a life stage in which they kill the hosts, really. Mm. Um, so think, I mean, we'll talk about like the predatory, well, paracid, parasite, like wasps and okay. stuff, you know, those kind of things. Uh, we'll talk about them a little bit later. They have maybe some different desired goals than a parasite. Makes sense. A parasitoid just definitely doesn't want to get eaten. But mm-hmm. a parasite kind of does.
1: Got it. Yeah. Makes sense. So, how about you teach me something?
0: Perfect. So, as crazy as some of these things that I'll, I'll, I'll provide examples of, uh, seem, the, the strategy of altering a host's actions is not new, uh, nor is it uncommon in any way. So, parasites have been trying to, to do this to control their host behavior for, we think, hundreds of millions of years already. So, they're
1: pretty experienced.
0: Yeah. Um, we've found fossilized ants that show um, strategies that we know are used today from fungi and helminth parasites. Okay. In current day ants. Um, so, the fossils showed us that that kind of behavior was already well established 30 to 50 million years ago. Mm-hmm. Um. At its present day levels, basically. We think it's the same. Cool. So it must have actually established itself a long time...
1: Previous to that. ...before that.
0: Yeah. Um, And we do also think that host manipulation has evolved at least 20 times independently of each other. Like... Okay. 20 separate events.
1: Of parasites doing this, like starting to control their hosts. Yes. Okay. Very cool.
0: Yeah. So there's kind of three main uh, types, like goals of the manipulation. Um, One where you're facilitating finding the right mate or environment. Okay. One where the host is being manipulated to being a bodyguard. Sure. And one in which the parasite is trying to control its trophic transmission. So we're we're going to talk about that. Okay. When we get there... Don't worry. I we don't gonna, expect we everyone get there to there next, know everything.
1: Or in a couple topics.
0: We're going to get there real soon. Okay, great. See, I made a list, right? And, mm-hmm. then, and then I was going to do them in order of the list. Makes right?
1: sense. So yeah. it's a little bit like uh, a cliffhanger that we will resolve soon.
0: Very soon. Okay, let's do that. So in the whole mate environment finding area, um, basically a parasite might want to get, for example, to water. So, crickets that are infected with a nematomorph parasite called Paragordius tricuspidatus, um, they, and grasshoppers get infected by this as well. A, a lot of bugs get infected with these nematomorphs. They're like, ooh, uh, what are they called? Threadworm type things? Sure. Okay. Horsehair worm type thing. Anyways, they want water. So they make the, the cricket or grasshopper just jump into water. Good. Um, and then they, they exit the body in the water. Okay. But that's one example of that. Um, and then they, you know, now can travel easier and find their mates and all that.
1: Yeah. All that it's jazz. It's a better medium for that.
0: Yeah. Um, bodyguard manipulation is exactly what it sounds like. It's when the parasite's gonna change the host's behavior to protect the parasite or the parasite's offspring. Okay. Um, and now trophic transmission control. See, it wasn't a very long wait. Nope. Just a little. Um, so. To define that, we should define trophic. We should. Since I am I don't think it's a common uh, word people hear out and about in the street every day.
1: I mean, I didn't hear it earlier today, so... So yeah. probably not. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, so an organism's trophic level is just where they are in the food chain. Where do you lie okay. in the food chain? Um, usually it's like numbered one through five, and a plant is like a number one because it gets eaten, and then to, all the way to five, which is... You know, people or whomever. Okay. Um, so trophic transmission is just a parasite being transferred a trophic level. Okay. Because they're eaten by, you know,
1: another animal.
0: Yeah. So a little, a little off topic. I thought that was interesting, so I'm including it. Uh, I was reading an interesting article about how trophic transmission might have evolved. Sure. Like, how did a parasite go from one host to all of a sudden this multi host lifestyle? Yeah. Um, so that was interesting. So a leading theory is that there was strong selective pressure to be able to survive the death of the first host. And the way that maybe one out over all other ways and mutations, natural selection, um, accidentally led to, uh, was just Find a way to parasitize the host's predator. Yeah. And the ones that could do that successfully, you know, reproduced a whole lot better because also, you know, yay, yeah, you're not dead, but now you're in a bigger, like longer lived animal. Right. So now you live much longer to reproduce a lot more. So you can see how that strategy might have caught on quickly once it arose.
1: Sure. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, a parasite can change things about the intermediate host. So, let's remember, intermediate is um, the one that they're just kind of in an in-between lifestyle. They're not reproducing yet. They've got to get into their definitive host to reproduce. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, they're trying to get passed on yeah. right now in their intermediate host. Um, so, they obviously want to get eaten. So, how do you make an animal get eaten? Well you know, reduce their avoidance behaviors, their anti-predator like instincts, uh, or you could replace avoidance with attraction. Um, And like I said, they can change the appearance in some ways to make them want to get, well, make them more visible or whatever to the predators. That happens a lot. Um, So how though do do they manage this? How do they change the behaviors? What's the mechanism at play? Um, you, you might guess this, but there's some direct and some indirect techniques.
1: Makes sense. Okay.
0: Um, so parasites can penetrate inside the brain, um, attack it from within, or they can just secrete a neuroactive compound into the blood that, you know, has to get through the blood brain barrier, but then it can circulate into the brain. Um, alternatively, they could do an indirect kind of strategy. And they'll target the endocrine organs or parts of the immune system. And the hormones will be produced or signaling molecules will be produced by those parts of the body. And that will affect, uh, affect the host. So it's an, yeah, indirect way of doing it. Okay. Um, so as far as the brain and central nervous system is concerned, it's obviously, you know, that's the most obvious target, I would say. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we'll start, we'll start here. Some parasites obviously do infect components of the central nervous system and that's probably because it's poorly guarded by our immune systems. Really? Yeah, it's it, unfortunately to allow the things in you have to like,
1: like freely allow that information to flow or, or allow that.
0: It's not free. There's definitely barriers, but yeah, compared to other organs or mm-hmm. other you know, it's uh not as well guarded, which um is thought, well, maybe that's why there's so many parasites that alter behavior. Because okay. this strategy, like, it's not well-guarded. Yeah. It's not well-guarded. Yeah. Um. So when a parasite infects a neuron in the central nervous system, the host's central nervous system is going to respond like it would to any other infection, um, mostly like a lot of inflammation in the area mm-hmm. and producing a lot of a single molecule chemical called a cytokine. Um, and then the immune system like doing those things is actually what causes a lot of the behavioral changes sometimes in a parasite infection. Okay. Um, directly from, you know, you've heard that a lot where it's like, um, actually your body's immune system response is hurting you just as much as it's hurting the yeah. virus or whatever in other cases. Um, so parasites that are known to do these kind of direct behavioral changes through the central nervous system. We talked about one earlier, a long time ago now. Toxoplasma gondii in, yeah. in rats. Maybe people too. Uh, trypanosoma cruzi in mice and Plasmodium mexicanum in the Mexican lizard. All do a similar thing. Um, there's also social behavior in our brains. Our brains kind of code for obviously the more basic the organism. The more is run on instinct and kind of direct coding yeah. and not direct response. To stimuli. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of these things are, uh, hardwired in the brain. Um, and so that's regulated by neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, those types of things. Yep. Um, and that's found in the quote, emotional centers of our brain, the amygdala and the hypothalamus. So. Evidence suggests that parasites normally are going to use a very broad approach, not specifically target one pathway. They're just going to, like, toxoplasma gondii, attach the hypothalamus, for instance, um, and then kind of make this widespread increase to the brain of dopamine levels. Okay. Um, and then that large dopamine, dopamine release is thought to be in rats, like, why they lose their aversion to cat odor.
1: Okay. They're
0: just, like, happy about it now.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, there is something we're going to talk about a little bit later too. It's the Emerald Cockroach Wasp, which is cool, by the way. Uh, really, really cool looking. You should look it up. But it alters behavior by injecting a venom directly into the cockroach brain.
1: Okay. Which causes... venom.
0: Yes. Which causes something called hypokinesia. Like hypo-less, you know, kinesia movement, right? Yeah. So, um this venom really reduces the dopamine and it's called octapamine. so basically they're the same types of and they're a little a, bit different but okay. they're, they're they're similar neurotransmitters so it, the venom is going to reduce those activities of those things so that means the the neurons that are responsible for escaping aren't going to work anymore okay. basically um so they're still able to move like, the wasp, after it does this venom thing, is going to, like, drag it along, pull it along back to the wasp nest. And it walks along when it's being dragged. Um, so, it's just that the nervous system is being depressed. So, the way they put it was the wasp's uh, toxin isn't going to affect the ability of the cockroach to move, but it's going to affect its motivation to move. Okay. It no longer has any motivation to move. Okay. Yeah. So, um, parasites don't have to be inside the brain, though, to manipulate... The brain. So that's where the indirect methods come into play. So the immune system talks a lot to the brain.
1: This makes sense. With cytokines.
0: Yep. With those signaling molecules I was talking about. Okay. Um, they also use autonomic nerves. Obviously, that's the nerves that talk to the brain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... The activity levels, sleeping patterns, food preferences, social behaviors, including mating, all of this stuff can be, um, affected through cytokine and like on our nerve signaling. So yeah, again, you don't have to be in the brain. So for example, there's this, a fluke called Trichobillardia oscillata and it infects a snail and then it secrete, it causes the snail, sorry, to secrete a cytokine.
1: Which is going to just
0: turn off its egg laying. Hmm. So then it's going to steal all that energy the snail would have used.
1: Yeah, right.
0: In egg laying. Which, and we're going to talk about this castration thing a little bit more later. But then, you know, the parasite can use that energy to grow and reproduce. So another example is that there's larvae from parasitoid wasps that, you know, are in in a caterpillar. Mm -hmm. When they're ready to emerge. Um, They're going to secrete a compound that raises octopamine octopamine levels, that (laughs) neurotransmitter again. Anyways, that's going to suppress the host's, like the caterpillar's feeding and walking around motivations. So it's just going to sit around and do nothing so the caterpillar can emerge, or the wasp, sorry, can emerge easier.
1: Sure. Okay.
0: Um, another way that parasites can manipulate behavior is actually influencing the genome of their host.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah, so a lot of parasites don't have their own um, mechanisms for reproducing themselves without the host, right? That's what that's reason of parasites, right? right? Yeah. So a lot of them actually need some of the machinery, uh, need some of the host genes to help them do things. So like virus might induce a host to make viral proteins, right? They're not making it. We're making it when they're inside of us, right? Mm-hmm. We're making those um, by using mRNA, messenger RNA, or they insert copies of their genes into our DNA, which is what a retrovirus is. Yeah. And so whenever we replicate our DNA, we're making that for them. Right. Yeah. Um So protozoan and helminth parasites also have like, they're called vesicles. So these just these... You know, little circle things that contain RNAs, which are going to regulate the host's gene expression. Hmm. Turn things up or down, on or off. Got it. That kind of thing. So they can't make new traits, but they can... They
1: can turn on or off genes.
0: Turn the volume up or down. Okay. That kind of thing. Yeah. So parasites can also kind of eavesdrop on the host's hormonal signals, and they'll use that important information to respond. So, for example, um, Escherichia coli and Salmonella enterica, enterica, they can both, so those are viruses. Okay. Nope. Those are bacteria.
1: Okay. You E-coli. had me, uh, E-coli. convinced either way, but no.
0: Yeah. I got it. Don't worry. It just took me a second. Sure. Anyways, um, so they're going to increase when the host in, um, they're going to sense when a host increases, like, stress hormone levels. Things like epinephrine. Sure. And they're going to be like, uh-oh.
1: Something's t- happening. It
0: knows we're here. I Yes. They, they don't actually know anything, right? Yeah. But, but that's kind of the way to think about it. And then they're going to accelerate their growth and start expressing their virulence factors. So okay. So whatever they need to do what the virus does, whether it's enter a host's cell or just toxins or whatever it is that they're going to release, they're going to start releasing that stuff and they're going to start growing real fast. Okay. If they sense the host's stress hormones. um some sexually transmitted microbes uh will grow like start growing faster in response to different sex hormone levels.
1: Okay, like being prepared to that
0: yeah, we, yeah, we're gonna go. Yeah. There's lots of us. Let's replicate. Okay. Yeah. This makes sense. Yeah. Um so we know because of the popularity of this phenomenon that there must be other mechanisms being used that we don't really know much about especially because a lot of these animals haven't been studied that well
1: sure small
0: animals are hard to know about especially if there's no money in it so yeah
1: exactly um
0: so an example of like one of these more niche mechanisms uh is found in nematode worms in the family Mermithidae, and these guys infect arthropods almost always arthropods and they live in what's called the hemoseal of the animal so that's their circulatory cavity because we they don't have enclosed yeah. blood vessels, right. right? So they just have a cavity where the liquid sloshes around as yes. lovely. Yes, exactly like that. So the myrmothid um, is going to raise the hemolymph osmolo- osmolality. <laughs> okay. So I was going to say osmolality, but that's not it. Osmolality. So hemolymph is their version of blood. Yeah. Their oxygenating fluid. Yeah. And osmolality is the salt concentration of the fluid. Okay. Okay. So the salt concentration is going to increase. And they're going to do that because they want their host to go find some water.
1: Okay. Sure.
0: Right. And then, you know, they can be released to do what they need to do in the water. So it's clever. I like it. Um, we don't know how they do it, though.
1: <laughs> they do, we just know it does it. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. We don't know how. That's the thing. There's A lot of things we don't know. Uh, so now I wanted to get into like actual specific examples, because that's always fun to just it like, is. hear cool things.
1: Yeah, I like cool things. Okay. Take it away.
0: Starting with viruses, because that's small. Also
1: cool things. That makes
0: sense, right? Yeah. Small to big.
1: Oh, I see how we're doing Nothing goes. that okay. does
0: this is that big, though, obviously. Yeah. No human-sized... No. ...behavioral manipulators <laughs> on here, even though they...
1: <laughs> Maybe societal. Yeah,
0: but- so viruses from the family um, Baculoviridae. They're going to change the feeding behavior and environment selection of their hosts. So they infect caterpillars. And after the caterpillars get infected, they just start to eat nonstop, um, which gives the virus lots of nutrition to Absolutely. update itself. Yeah. And unfortunately, all I could think of when I was reading this was the Very Hungry Caterpillar that's book. That's where
1: I thought of, too. <laughs> it's just yeah.
0: never full. Oh, because well, you had a parasite mm. for a virus. Got it. <laughs> so, um, okay. Okay. Here's a specific example. The virus hmm. Limonatria dispar nucleopolyhedrovirus. There's a longer version of that name. and There's I a longer the version. <laughs> yeah, I, quite didn't, a I didn't want to read. Yes, but okay. I got it. And the longer version, I didn't want to do that one. Sure. It had the word malty in it somewhere also. Okay, anyways. It infects caterpillars of the spongy moth. So, like I said, this is in the Baculoviridae family. Okay. This is an we're example of this. All right. Yes. Um, So when the virions are ready to leave the host, the caterpillar's going to climb really high up, hold on, and it's going to die, and then it's going to, like, dissolve and rapture, and kind of, like, burst itself everywhere.
1: Okay. And it's kind of, like, spores? Do. Like, a similar idea to, like, spores being released by fungi or something like that?
0: I wouldn't say that. Like, it's like a liquid. Like, it's like it's a dissolved caterpillar that, oh, okay. like, pops, basically. And the goo Fun. just kind of goes... Everywhere. Yeah. Mostly the ground, but yeah. Where
1: there's other caterpillars. Everywhere on the
0: ground. Where there's other, not caterpillars, but it's next, right? We want its next host. It oh, I didn't another host. It okay. Yeah. Yes. So this is an example of genome manipulation, actually, by the parasite. Because the virus is what's going to induce the host to synthesize an enzyme. And this enzyme is going to inactivate... The hormone inside the caterpillar that regulates their circadian rhythms. Of, okay. So they're gonna climb when they shouldn't climb because right. that's something in caterpillar controlled by its kind of instinctive circadian rhythm. Um. Then the caterpillar cells are made to secrete enzymes that dissolve it and dissolve themselves into which Q.
1: seems strange. Yeah. Okay.
0: So, um, yes, it is. It is a virus with things that the virus has to encode. This is not regulating expression up or down. Yeah. It's going to make the caterpillar's body produce something that the virus has the code for. It's not like, this caterpillar has it secretly in its genome, and we're going to activate it. It Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Then there's the Lysivirus, which you have probably heard of. Maybe. If not, you will in a second. Um,
1: Yes, that's how learning works.
0: (laughs) No, I mean like you're going to be like, oh yeah, that one. Okay. Because it causes rabies.
1: Oh yeah, okay, that one.
0: Okay. So... Rabies is caused, um, when saliva with infected, infectious particles of (laughs) rabies comes in contact with a mucous membrane or open wound, basically. Um, and this disease causes aggression, uh, foaming, which is actually not as common as They make it seem. Yeah, they make it seem, but increased salivation, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um... So, I was always confused about, like, why rabies? How... Not why.
1: (laughs) Why rabies?
0: Kind of why. But also how rabies made people, quote, scared of water. I was like, what's this about? How is this possibly adaptive? What's up with this? Right. Behavior. So, I went a little more in-depth into rabies than the scope of this uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I don't know. I do what I want. So, um... People actually used to call rabies hydrophobia because of this so-called fear of water, which obviously it's not a fear of water. Um, it is a fear of swallowing, basically. So the infection causes intense spasms in the throat when a person tries to swallow. And it gets to the point where even the thought of swallowing can cause the spasms. Ooh. So it like seems like someone's scared of water because you'll put the water near them and they'll start all shaking and getting all upset and... Um, So, yeah, rabies causes hydrophobia, I guess. But basically, it's a fear of swallowing anything, which is known as dysphagia. Okay. Um, So, we think scientists... I say we when I mean, like, the science community. Not that I'm a part of the science community. I don't want that to sound, like, arrogant. <laughs> but I feel like it's the best way to talk about it. Because otherwise, all the articles say things like... It is currently thought that this happens. I'm like, how about we just write we think? Sure. (laughs) That's better, right? I understand. So we think that the kind of aversion to water served the purpose of making the saliva as concentrated as possible with virus. So they just don't want it to be, well, again, I I say want, but like, I know there's no actual want involved here. It's just the easiest way to talk about it. But yeah, you don't want to dilute it in any way, right? You Mm -hmm. want that concentrated saliva for when the bite happens. Yep. Um, so I just want to do a few quick rabies facts.
1: Okay, let's go there.
0: Rabies is one of those neglected tropical diseases we talked about in our mosquitoes episodes, uh, meaning it predominantly affects people that are marginalized, poor, vulnerable, and therefore little money or research is, is put into uh, sure. that disease. So rabies is a vaccine preventable illness, by the way, you know, if you get bit by an animal Go to the doctor. Um, zoonotic, again, given to us by animals. Yeah. Uh, it's a viral disease, like I said. It affects the central nervous system. It's v- all but 100% fatal um, once you show symptoms. Right. So in countries where dogs commonly have rabies, more than 99% of the cases are from dog bites. Okay. But like here in the Americas bats are the most common source of rabies Mm -hmm. bat bites um less than five percent of the cases here are from dogs makes sense and you know not really not really rodents don't really do the rabies thing a lot of them don't really have or spread rabies okay so that's good um so rabies causes about they think maybe 59,000 human deaths every year
1: that many still
0: in 150 different countries
1: Wow. Okay.
0: But ninety-five percent of those cases and deaths are in Africa and Asia, uh, Southeast okay. Asia mostly. But a- again, also
1: amongst the kind India. of like neglected yeah. populations,
0: wild dogs again make a big difference. You can't control the populations of those animals, and yeah, things can get bad. And also, the treatments can be really expensive for people that make like two dollars a day, and you're spending one hundred and eight of that on a rabies treatment. Totally. And then you have to walk really far to get there in the first place. You're just not going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there are two forms of rabies. Furious rabies and paralytic rabies.
1: Oh, okay. So
0: furious rabies is the one that you typically think of. It uh, causes hyperactivity or excitable behaviors, hallucinations, lack of coordination, that dysphagia that we talked about, and aerophobia, fear of drafts or fresh air.
1: Oh, I've never heard of uh, that before.
0: Neither had I. Um, so that's going to kill you in a few days. You're okay. going to die of uh, cardio respiratory arrest. Okay. Paralytic rabies is about 20% of the cases. And it's um, a longer, slower course. So you're kind of like going to gradually experience muscle paralysis starting from your wound site. Then it's going to be a coma and then eventually death. But sure. apparently this form of rabies is, is misdiagnosed a lot because it's not common. And it's so different from the other form. Yeah. Um, so it's very underreported. Okay. Yeah. So as of 2016, only 14 people have been documented to survive rabies after showing symptoms. Um, but there was this research in 2010 conducted in a population of people in Peru that get bitten relatively often by vampire bats. Ooh. And uh, vampire bats, by the way, are commonly infected with rabies. So they found that out of 73 people that reported previous bat bites, seven of them had rabies virus neutralizing antibodies.
1: Interesting. Okay.
0: So they're thinking maybe people may have the ability to have an exposure to the virus without treatment and develop natural antibodies.
1: Okay. Kind of akin to a... Like, uh, well, I don't know what's in the booster shot, but, or the vaccine, I should say.
0: The vaccine, which is like four very painful shots. Yeah. Don't want discourage anyone from getting it though. If you need it, it's definitely better than dying of rabies. Totally. I think anything might, like, most things in the world seem better than dying of rabies. This is true. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Protozoans. Protozoan parasites. Um, I've already talked about some things that. Plasmodium, Diz, dozen mosquitoes. Yeah. Uh, in our mosquitoes episode, if you... I don't know if it was part one, two, or three at this point, <laughs> but if you want... who's in there? Was it three parts think, or just two? I think two? it was
1: three. I don't
0: know. Anyways, the multi-part mosquito episode. Uh, the malaria parasite Plasmodium falciparum is most of what we talked about, but I didn't mention this, so here we go. It changes the host, the mosquito Anopheles gambiae, usually... It's attraction to sources of nectar. So it wants it to increase its sugar uptake or to like take more of its energy. Okay. So it makes it want more sugary nectar. And uh, then it's going to decrease the host's attraction, like the mosquito's attraction to human blood while the parasite is still on its replication phase.
1: Right, because it doesn't want to dilute again.
0: No, because it doesn't want it to get swatted. It wants Mm. the mosquito to be safe. I see. So those two... Things it does are examples of bodyguard manipulation, right? Yeah. Changing the mosquito to help the parasite stay alive or grow. Yep. Right? But then when it's ready to be transmitted, it's going to then increase the mosquito's attraction to humans. Makes sense. So it does that transmission part too. So it's pretty cool. It is pretty Um, cool. Parasitic worms. There are a lot of parasitic worms. True. All types of worms. So crazy. And a lot of them do this type of behavior modification stuff. So um, I tried to really narrow it down, but okay. there's lots of worms. Okay. Okay. This one I can say. Totally can do it. It's a Pompherrincus laevis. That's what it is.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. I'm not going to repeat that.
0: It's a type of acanthocephalan, which I can say. That's like a spiny-headed worm. Okay. That's the type of worm it is. You may not have heard of them. No. Fair enough. They look spotty-headed.
1: I would have guessed as much.
0: So, it lives in its intermediate host, an amphipod. Do you know what that is? No. Okay. They're like little shrimp-like crustaceans, but they're not shrimp. Okay. Okay. Fair Um, enough. Whatever. The host is an amphipod, Gamaris pulex. So, this worm... And when it infects the amphipod, it causes them to change their drifting behaviors. So they should get eaten by a fish. Okay? Okay. So it can change the response of the amphipod to light. So unaffected amphipods are going to show photophobic behavior. You know, they avoid the light. Yeah. Obviously that helps to avoid predators. Um, But the ones that are infected become strongly photophilic. So now they like the light, so they're gonna go swim towards the light.
1: Yeah, that's significantly different.
0: Yes. Um, so basically, the parasite's gonna direct, almost directly, alter the brain to do this. So, what the study that they looked at all this stuff in in great depth, <laughs> the study found the immunoreactivity of the brain to serotonin um, increased by around forty percent for the infected amphipods
1: wow okay
0: compared to the uninfected ones so yeah. they were again probably uh, making this reward system where they they felt reward by seeking light right like yeah. light caused happy feelings yeah is how they've done this manipulation
1: and in a fairly like uh stimuli and response type of organism feeling good is like we're gonna go do that
0: You say that like people aren't exactly the same. (laughs) Um, Chasing that high wherever you can find it. Okay. Um, You know, like runner's highs, people do crazy things. It's true. People run to get high. No, it's crazy. So, um, also, if the amphipods are infected with the larval stage, the one that can be transmitted, the amphipods are all of a sudden going to be less likely to show behaviors that keep them safe. Okay, makes sense. So, they'll use refuge less frequently. They are less likely to cluster together when there's danger. And they're more likely to cling to things floating in the water, which obviously makes them Easier obvious. to see, yeah. Yeah. Um, when the amphipod, though, is infected with the non-transmissible stage... Then so does a
1: bodyguard type of behavior?
0: Exactly. So, now there's an increased use of refuge.
1: Hmm, okay.
0: Yes. Um... And just because I said I would talk about some of the visual stuff, while it's causing all those behavioral changes, the parasite itself is going to turn bright orange.
1: The parasite. So is is this host like translucent or see through or something Enough like that? Enough that you could see, you could see a the parasite. bright orange parasite. Yeah. Yes. Okay, cool.
0: Right. So that visual manipulation is actually, and they've studied this, most effective on the specific host species that can serve as its next host and and not as attractive to Shoot. the fish that don't that it doesn't want to be eaten by.
1: Interesting. Okay, that's very cool.
0: Yeah. Okay, now we're gonna talk about a fluke. A lancet liver fluke. Let's do that. Dichrocelium dendriticum. Um so it's a trematode. It's got a pretty okay, here's the life cycle. It's a little bit complicated, but okay. I think we can follow along. So in its adult state, it's gonna live in the liver of uh mostly any ruminant.
1: Ruminant, I know this word, but
0: like a grazing animal yes hosts, like a yep. giraffe deer. Ruminant. There's like lots of there's lots of varied ones. Um so that's its definitive host. Okay. So it's gonna reproduce sexually in its definitive host. Makes sense. The eggs come out of the feces of the host. Mm-hmm. They are eaten by a terrestrial snail. So that's its first intermediate host.
1: Okay.
0: Um, then it's going to be a juvenile in the snail. And it's going to attempt... It's, the snail is going to, like, make a slime ball with the parasites and excrete them. So there's these little slime balls all over with the juvenile stage in it. Okay. And then the slime balls are eaten by ants. And ants are the second intermediate host. Sure. It's in that second inter- intermediate host, the ant, where this manipulation is going to happen. So the fluke is going to make the ant move up to the top of the grass, where it's going to bite onto the tip of the grass blade and die. Mm-hmm. So a you know grazing ruminant may come by and trying to eat, eat the grass it. and eat and eat the ant. Yes.
1: Okay, it makes sense. Well, I think this is the first time I've heard one of these go from a intermediate host to a smaller intermediate host. It sounded like most of the times they go from intermediate host to a large uh, definitive host. That's just interesting.
0: Fair enough. I also don't know how big the snail is and how big the ant is. You're right. Oh, a I'm snail, just assuming a a that the snail, snail is, is bigger. probably bigger than an ant. How much bigger, I don't know. Okay. Snails can be so many sizes.
1: It's true they can. I assume
0: you're right in that it is bigger than the ant. Sure. But um, good point. Yes. Okay. The next one we're going to talk about is you Euhyplorcus californiensis. Um. Okay. So this guy lives in a shorebird as its definitive host. Its eggs are gonna be released with the shorebird's poop, which means they're everywhere. Okay. Everywhere, right? You know how birds I are. I
1: do. And it was, these are still worms of types, right?
0: We're still on different worms. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Good. So horn snails are going to eat the poop. Sure. And they're gonna become sterile. Oh. So that's, like I said, um, I'm going to talk about this castration element yeah. in a little bit because it is common. It is common, yeah. Um, and not just... It's common in a lot of parasites, yeah. Okay. So once the parasite lives in the snail a couple generations, you know, using all that reproductive energy to grow. Yep. The larvae are going to swim out into the marsh. They're going to attach onto the gills of something called a killifish. Okay. And they're going to make their way along a nerve into the brain cavity. Hmm. They're going to insist in the meningeal layer of the brain on the surface there. And so like a carpet, like a carpet over the brain. Oh. And infected killifish are four times more likely to do behaviors such as shivvying, jerking, flashing, and surfacing.
1: Right where a bird might want to come grab it.
0: This behavior makes the infected ones 30 times more likely to be caught in by bird. Yes. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, then it's back in the bird. It gets to reproduce and make some eggs. Yada, yada, yada. Yep. Okay. Next one. Another trematode. Leucochloridium paradoxum. Um, and this one, I think I learned about multiple times in my life. Because I did a zoology degree, not because I just have a life like that. Sure. Um, So it's called the green-banded brood sac.
1: Hmm. It's a good name, I think.
0: Immatures inside snails of the genus Sakinia, we're the amber snails. So a snail, just like the other ones we've been saying, eats bird droppings. Yep. And gets the Parasite. And the larvae, when they hatch inside the snail, are going to move to the tentacles of the snail, where their eyes are. hmm And they're going to create a sack in there. You know, rib sack, just like their name says. Makes sense. Yeah. So as the sack matures, it's going to replace the eye stalk of the snail, basically.
1: Wow. It's
0: going to just grow all in there, replace it, blinding the snail. Yeah. Uh, Preventing it from drawing the tentacle back into its body, which you may have noticed snails don't just keep their eyes out all the time.
1: No, they don't. That's true.
0: Yeah. So when it's ready, it's all grown to switch. It wants to switch to the bird again.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so it's going to start pulsating that tentacle like 60 to 80 times a minute. So like fast, like yeah. pulsating. Um, and you know, it's obviously kind of colorful, green banded. It's banded, striped. You know, it's, a, it's a cool looking thing. Um, so that's earned the snails the nickname Disco Zombies. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So also the infected snails behave differently in that they move farther, position themselves in more exposed areas, in better illuminated areas. They go higher vegetation, all of those things. Um, so the parasite's causing them to be more visual-like. They want a bird to be able to see this crazy disco show. Yeah. Um... A bird c- can just take the eye stalk if the snail is lucky, but the larvae is still, more larvae are always in the snail, so they'll just keep, they'll just keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So next we're going to talk about um, some more trematodes. They, okay. They're from a genus called Microphallus, and I know, oh. I tried to figure out why in the world too bad for them. They called them that. Yeah. Especially because it's hard to look up microphallus on the internet and just get worms. The type of worm I wanna see.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So um for instance, there is one species of microphallus that parasitize a antipoderum. I got it. That's a snail. Another snail. Snails have a lot of worms, yeah, by the way. Apparently so. I don't know how people make sure escargot is safe to eat. but.
1: Hmm. And does this transfer to a bird eventually?
0: Uh, yeah, of course. Yes, of course. yes. yes. Um, so first, th- this guy is going to make the snail change its foraging behavior so that a waterfowl will eat it. Basically, it's just going to make the snail forage on the upper side of the rocks when the waterfowl are feeding there. And then during the rest of the day, um, it's going to make it forage somewhere away from the fish, which is something the parasite does not want it to get eaten by.
1: Of course, yeah.
0: So it just flips its behaviors entirely, basically. Um, Microphallus piriforms causes the rough periwinkle, which is its snail host, to move upwards. Just keep climbing.
1: Kind of like Dory, but instead of swimming, it's climbing.
0: Yeah, so that herring gulls will eat it. Um, uh, Microphallus papilla robustus makes the lagoon sand shrimp, not a snail this oh, time. Oh, interesting. Swim upwards. Okay. There we go. Um, and then, uh, Microphallus pseudopygnaeus is gonna chemically castrate its host, which is a snail, Onaba oculeus. Um, and then the snail actually grows much larger than normal, but we don't know if that's of any benefit to the parasite or just a side effect that just kinda happens. It just happened, yeah. Um, so I did want to mention this just because, again, why all this castration?
1: Well, my assumption is in most animals and species that it takes a lot of energy and a lot of energy reserves to reproduce. And if you uh, stop that animal from reproducing, those energy stores are now available for you to use as a parasite.
0: Yeah, that's that's pretty much exactly it. Um Females, I, w- I should point out, in many species, use a lot of energy, and males do not.
1: Sure. Okay. Yeah.
0: But that's not often true in these little guys, because did you know that in these little animals, say a snail, the gonads are going to be like five to fifteen percent of the mass of the whole, like the host.
1: Really. That's yeah. a lot.
0: Right. So that's a lot of energy. Yeah. There, plus all the things you said, so egg laying, obviously. Um, making all the little sperm ducks or whatever you need to, to, it's not just the one gonad itself, right? Um, any sort of sexual selection stuff, I'm going to make a big shell to impress, like, like, all that stuff can get turned off if you cast right an animal in time.
1: Oh, I, um, I guess so. Yeah. Like, that makes so, sense.
0: so, uh, yeah. So like, you know, yeah. Eggshells, like those types of things are all expensive and, um, mate selection, just like make competition, fighting over nest type of space, all that stuff. You can, can just take preventive. all of that energy. Mm-hmm. And this parasite can basically choose how a host is allocating its energy because it can take all the energy from something. And so, but there's a little more to it than that because um, they don't want to decrease the host's viability. They don't want to make the host more likely to die because then they die. Yeah. At least until they're ready, right? Yeah. So by taking all of this sexual energy, they're leaving everything alone that the host really needs to just be alive. Operate. Yeah. And be healthy.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. So that's a good target. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Back to snails. I okay. mean, not snails. Worms. We're talking about worms. They're just always in snails. But this one is not. All oh, boy. All of a sudden, boy. we're kind of moving away from snails, so I shouldn't have said snails. You shouldn't have. Worms. Okay. We're going to talk about... Myrmeconema neotropicum, which is a nematode.
1: Sounds like it. Not a trematode. Okay.
0: Yeah. So it infects uh, Cephalodes atratus, which is an ant. This is an ant. So it's going to do one of those visual things I was saying earlier, and it's going to turn the ant's gaster, so kind of the big ball at the end of its body, you know. Okay. The thorax. Yeah. It's going to turn that... Like a bright red color instead of the black color of the ant,
1: so this isn't a red ant to start with,
0: right, and it's okay. gonna make it grow a little bit, and then it's gonna make the ant climb into these patches of red berries and kind of raise their abdomen up oh,
1: to look like berries,
0: exactly, so it really wants to be eaten by frugivorous birds, and it does so mm-hmm. yeah, that one's pretty.
1: I mean, so it might not that. have been snails, but still transmits to birds, so <laughs> red and line,
0: yeah, birds also have a lot of parasites, apparently so. Lots of animals have lots of parasites, hmm. fish, just yeah. animals. Pneumatomorpha, um, which I did mention a little bit earlier. Nematomorpha has some good examples of um, the parasites tr- making the host help them find the right environment or mate area. Okay. So the horsehair worms, like I said earlier, I think I was talking about in crickets and grasshoppers. Um, they also make the crickets and grasshoppers have this light-seeking behavior and increased walking speed, and so they think that's like you know there will be light gleaming off water anytime sure. it's dark. Yeah. So this is probably a good idea. Like that—that's kind of one of the ideas behind it. Um, but anyways, yes, these crickets are gonna find water eventually. The worms wiggle out. It's disgusting. Don't watch that video. But sometimes the crickets are just okay. Like, sometimes, oh, most times they drown. Mm. Most times. Okay. But sometimes they just seem to be normal again, like 20 hours later. Really? Sometimes. Fascinating. If they don't drown.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so one story or study in Japan showed that the nematomorphs can cause crickets and grasshoppers to become 20 times more likely to enter water than they would be.
1: Makes sense. Yeah.
0: Okay, Schistocephalus solidus, where it's a parasitic flatworm.
1: Hmm.
0: It has three different hosts, two intermediate ones and a definitive one. Okay. Okay, so this tapeworm, when it's an adult, is going to live in the intestine of fish-eating birds. There's birds again. They're, you know, going to make eggs that are in the bird poop. The larvae are going to hatch and be free swimming. And then copepods are going to eat them.
1: Copepods. I can't say I know what those are.
0: Again, they're just very, very tiny sea organisms. Okay. One of the first things, first consumers on the food chain type of guys. Okay. Um, so the parasite's going to grow, and then it's going to develop inside the copepod, and it's going to be eaten by a stickleback fish, three-spine stickleback. Um, and that fish... Needs to get eaten by a bird again.
1: A bird. Mm -hmm. So,
0: um, S solidus is going to make the fish swim oddly. Sure. It's going to override its escape response. Um, It's going to make it swim upwards, you know, flash around, all that kind of stuff. Uh, And it's also been observed in studies that it doesn't cause these behavior changes until it has reached its transmissible stage.
1: Totally makes sense, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, last example is Curtateria australis. So, uh, cockles. Do you know what a cockle is? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So self Island oyster catchers love to eat cockles. I just wanted to include that in this. A one oyster catcher could eat, uh, like, 200,000 cockles every year.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Right? That's why I wanted to include for that useless trivia fact. Um, so... This guy, Curtitaria australis, is um, a flatworm, another flatworm, and it infects cockles, and it makes them so that their foot, like their foot, is what they dig up and down through the sand with. Yep. This is a, this is a shellfish, like like a clam. Yep. So it's not a clam, but like well, it has like a
1: ruffled shell. Like a clam. But yeah.
0: yeah. Um. So without its foot, it can't dig up and down. Right. And it's going to be basically demobilized. Mm-hmm. And surface. So it's going to surface and be demobilized, not demobilized underground. That would have so no So obviously,
1: it's all easy of a picking. sudden,
0: this cockle is going to get eaten by an oyster catcher.
1: Yeah. And just to make sure everyone is aware, an oyster catcher isn't like a, a human person who goes and gets oysters. No, it's a bird. It's a bird.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's a, it's a cool looking bird.
1: Well, I just have to return to the fact that this is almost always related to birds.
0: Birds are a lot of parasites. I don't yeah. know what to tell you. Yeah. Huh? Um, Okay. Now I talk about insects, and insects are mostly all mostly all parasitoids okay. instead of parasites because they directly kill their hosts. Right, um, but not all. Like I said, we'll get to a few. So I talked about the emerald cockroach wasp Ampulex compressa a little earlier with its crazy venom. You did. Um, so it uses the American cockroach as its host well the host for its larvae i
1: was gonna say it for its larvae yep understood
0: yeah so the other reason i think it's interesting is we look at the pictures of these guys the wasp is smaller than the cockroach like not quite a ton but it definitely is yeah so and also it's just the most beautiful emerald color you wouldn't believe it it's like a jewel anyways it's so cool so the wasp stings the cockroach twice so first, it's going to sting it in the thoracic ganglion, which paralyzes its front legs. Mm-hmm. So that's going to, you know, just lay still while I...
1: Do the rest. Aim,
0: aim this one much better, because that's the one that needs to go directly in the brain. Yeah. Like we talked about earlier, to, you know, make that venom come out, to make it go into that state of hypokinesia, where it doesn't want to move at all. Yeah. And then it's going to, like I said, lead the cockroach, pull it home to the burrow. It's going to put an egg into the abdomen, and... Uh, The larvae is going to eat the cockroach. But the cockroach is still alive in its hypokinetic state for a very long time because that keeps the food source fresh.
1: I see. So it's not like the cockroach at that point is going out and eating to continue to gain new energy. It just lives.
0: Paralyzed being eaten alive yeah, until the larvae is ready to come out.
1: Okay. Fun.
0: Yeah. Wasps are fascinating, but terrifying. Sure. Um, so there are several species of fly that are in the family for a day, and they parasitize fire ants. So the fly will inject their egg in the ant's thorax. The larvae is going to hatch and then migrate to the ant's head, and then it's going to eat, you know, everything inside of there. The hemolymph, the muscle, yeah. the nerves. Uh, it directs the ant to to walk away from the nest to find a moist, leafy place for it. Um, then, you know, it's going to finish devouring the ant's brain. And this usually, um, is when the, you know, the exoskeleton head part is going to just fall off. Sure. Because this species is called the decapitating fly. Um, yeah. Then it lives in that little empty head for a little while until it's ready to be a fly.
1: And it just emerges.
0: Yeah.
1: Also fun.
0: There are some spiders or no, so I'm sorry. Well, there are some spiders.
1: Spiders do exist, yes.
0: Yes, but there are some wasps that make these spiders spin webs the way the wasps want them to.
1: Cool, okay.
0: Which I thought was cool. So, oh god, all these Latin names. Okay, Hymenopamesis argiophagia. Sure, something like that. So it grows its larvae on spiders of a species I don't really want to say, Leucagia Argyra. Uh-huh. Okay. So, basically, it injects a chemical that changes a spider's weaving behavior. So, instead of making a web, it's going to make a cocoon for the larva. Cool. Then, then the larva basically kills the spider and enters the cocoon.
1: Okay. And then it's nice to protect it until it's ready to emerge. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, okay. Then there's one called Recliner Velis nielcini. I hope Nielsen was happy his name was used for a parasitic wasp that attaches to the spider, Cyclosa argentalba. Anyways, it makes the spider change its weaving behavior. So again, it makes this cocoon-like thing. Um, and so the longer the larva was attached to the spider, before it kills it, obviously, mm-hmm. um, the more prominent the weaving change, the change in the weaving behavior was. Okay. So maybe it's a gets slow more, release of something over time. Yeah, more. it kind of gets
1: progressively, like a, uh, progressively more in favor of this new type of yeah weaving.
0: Yeah, so, you know, ah, those were cool.
1: Interesting. Cool. Okay.
0: See, parasites are cool. They are. They're just also icky, but so cool. Yeah. Um. So I want to talk about some of, like, the mate environmental facil- facilitation stuff where it's not like they just kill Something for their larvae to eat. Yeah. There are other types of insect parasites. So we just talked about that forward fly. That's the decapitating fly. We did. That's the genus Apocephalus. Okay. So those Apocephalus, they attack ants. But there is Apocephalus borealis. Oh. And this one does not attack ants. It attacks bees and wasps.
1: Sounds like an angel. Okay.
0: (laughs) So the flies are known as zombie flies colloquially the parasite and the bees they infect they call them zombies
1: mm, nice yeah i see what they did there
0: yeah so um bees that are infected by the larva of this fly they're gonna fly far away from their hive they're gonna die and release the larvae when they're ready to pupate so this hive abandonment particularly at night is confirmed to be behavior modification caused by um Apocephalus borealis but they don't know why yet exactly they make it go away from the hive i guess they just maybe the other bees would kill it if it stayed and died there. like i don't know
1: sure okay
0: i don't know um but i wanted to mention this one because there's this citizen science project called zombie watch <laughs> um where like on social media on all their social medias they ask people to report sightings of zombies yeah uh potential zombies it's okay if you get it wrong Um, So because they want to know where in North America this fly is spreading to, Mm -hmm. um, how often honeybees are leaving their hives at night, all these informations, and they want just their stated goal is to engage citizen scientists in making a significant contribution to knowledge about honeybees and becoming better observers of nature. That's very cool. That's their stated goal. So zombie, like Z O M B E (laughs) E, zombie watch, if you want to look at that, if you like bees. Okay. So there's this order of insects I had never heard of, called the Strepsiptera. I'm pretty sure there's lots of orders of insects I've never heard of, but this is one okay. of them. That's right. what I'm trying to say. They're in the family Myrmacolicidae. Um, so they can make the hosts stay like perched on tips of grass leaves, um, to try to find mates. They're not trying to get their host eaten. Okay they want their mate to be able to find them because, or, you know, if they're, if they are a male parasite, they, that's a good place for them to emerge, to go find the females. Cause the females will also be in these other insects, but kind of perching on blades of grass. So yes, yeah, straps of terra parasite or parasitize other insects, okay, like bees, wasps, like grasshoppers, cockroaches, these kinds of things. So I was kind of like, how small are these things that they're inside other insects? Yeah. Um, So, the first instar larvae, so, like, the ones that are just hatched, are, like, 230 micrometers long. So, that's smaller than lots of single-celled organisms. Okay. When they're fully grown, the female's, like, four millimeters and the male's, like, half a millimeter. Wow. So, that, just so you know. Yeah. Um, So, they're most closely related to beetles, we think, because they diverged, like, 350 million years ago.
1: A little while ago. The only
0: common name is stylops. So now I'm going to call them stylops so I can stop saying long Latin names.
1: Okay. That'd be great.
0: Okay. So female stylops don't usually ever emerge from the host. They just find a host and live in there their whole life and die in there. Okay. Okay. So they have to occur while, or may, while they are in the host.
1: Yeah. Sounds so tricky. So they
0: basically have like a cephalothorax that they stick out. Stick out of the host. While well, they're mostly in the host, and the sure. male can just stick a sperm in there. Yeah, right. So the males leave, females never leave.
1: Yeah,
0: um, they manipulate their host so that they can find some way to meet when they're that small. It's very hard to find each other.
1: Uh, I bet so yeah. this is
0: a good this is a good strategy. Um, so I this doesn't have anything to do with anything. I just thought it was interesting about the stylops. Um, there is one family, Myrmacolacidae, that is parthenogenetic, which I think is cool. They have the smallest inso- insect genome so far that we found. Um, and they do something that I'm not sure any other parasite does. Um, males and females of the same species use different hosts. So the males oh. will infect ants, and the females will infect grasshoppers, crickets, or praying mantids.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that just for another random trivia fact, because that'll surely come up at your next pub trivia night.
1: Most well, certainly will.
0: Um, all right. So a few more parasitoids, because that's where we're going to find all the bodyguard manipulation examples, because obviously those guys don't really want to get eaten. They're not trying yeah. to be trophically transmitted.
1: They want that host all to themselves.
0: Yeah. So another wasp, because they're mostly wasps, right? DinoCampus coccinellae uh, parasitizes ladybugs. So the larva is gonna feed on the hemolymph of a parasitized ladybug. Ladybug. Yeah, ladybug is gonna get paralyzed. Okay. Okay. Then when it's ready, the larva is ready to to exit. It it will exit while keeping the ladybug alive. It's gonna weave a cocoon under the ladybug and it's gonna pupate there while the ladybug is just kind of like stuck to it, to top of it, kind of sure. paralyzed. Okay. Um. But the unusual part is that they're keeping it alive and just paralyzed. And so there's these twitching and grasping behaviors, though, from the ladybug every once in a while. Um, and the studies that they've done have shown that the cocoons that had these living, twitching ladybugs suffered less predation than ones that had a dead ladybug or no ladybug at all. Huh. So they keep it alive for the whole pupation time. Um, and the paralysis isn't actually done by the larva. It's done by a virus, the Dinocampus coccinelle paralysis virus, shockingly enough.
1: I think I know what it does. Yeah. Person virus name. So
0: the wasp is going to inject that at the same time they inject the, the eggs. Okay. Um, and that's going to infect the ladybug's central nervous system. It's going to trigger the paralysis at the right time. Um, and which seems to be another example of the the parasite exploiting the host's immune system to make it do this. Yeah, yeah. There is another wasp called Cotesia glomerata that parasitizes pyrid. Yeah, pyrid caterpillars. Yeah, okay. So just like all these other ones, it's going to make the caterpillar kind of guard its larva, its its pupa. It's going to spin a web, the little larva. And it's going to the caterpillar is going to be aggressive and thrash its head around it or anything whenever an enemy comes around.
1: Okay, um, so physically bodyguarding in this case,
0: it is it is exactly that. Yeah, and they've recently proven that the parasite is making the caterpillar spin the web, the silk cocoon around the larva in this case.
1: Cool.
0: Yeah. Um, so there is, like to end it all off, we have one parasitic crustacean and then a few parasitic fungi. Okay, cool. So, well, it's not one, it's a group, the Rhizocephala. So here's an example Saculina carcini, the crab hacker barnacle. <laughs> okay. And that is exactly what it does. So it is a parasitic castrator. Got it. It lives in crabs usually the green crab, which lives in Western Europe and North America. Um, so the female larva will find the crab host. It'll find a kind of bristle to hold on to. And then it develops into this form which has basically like a spike and then her shell falls off. Because you know barnacles normally have shells, right? Yeah. Well not these guys once they go in a crab.
1: Right. So they like they lose their hard shell, they lose shell inside.
0: Yeah, they lose most of the stuff they just don't need. They push a little bit of themselves out of the crab sac,
1: hmm. the
0: externa. Okay. The rest of them is the interna. Well named. Yeah. The interna has all these tendrils that just kind of spread throughout the crab and they take over the stomach and the intestines and the nervous system. So they basically take all the food. They make all the decisions. It's a...
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. So they're going to inhibit the development of the gonads from the crabs and the, the gonads are going to atrophy. It also means the crab can't molt. Um, The male crab is going to develop feminine characteristics. It's going to broaden its abdomen and it's going to take care of eggs the same way a female um, crab would do.
1: Interesting. Okay.
0: So it's going to take care of the barnacle's eggs for it.
1: Got it. This makes sense.
0: Yeah. So in experiments, they removed the parasite from the host. Female crabs usually regenerated their ovaries. The male's started to develop ovaries when right. they took the host out or the uh, parasite out of the male crabs.
1: Fascinating. It didn't
0: regrow, you know, male gonads. It yeah. regrew female ones.
1: Cool. Yeah. Very cool.
0: Yes. So rhizocephala, like I said, this whole group is rhizocephala. It's called the root head. Hmm. Um, there's another type. So uh, loxothallicus panopi. I don't know. These are tough. Anyways, it lives in flatback mud crabs, um, and so usually the mud crab is an omnivore and sometimes eats mussels, but if they're infected with this rhizocephalin, they don't want to eat mussels anymore. Hmm. So they did this experiment, and then they put some mussels in front of infected ones and non-infected ones. The uninfected crabs ate as much as they could when they were yeah. provided with a pile of mussels, um, but no matter how many muscles they offered the infected ones, every time they would eat one and be done.
1: But they would eat one?
0: Yes, one.
1: Okay. Strange.
0: I, I agree. Um, yeah. And it also took them longer to start eating the more infection they had. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you might have heard of the first parasitic fungus I'm going to talk about because it's called, well, Commonly known as just cordyceps, yes. Um, okay. Ophiocordyceps unilateralis you know, specifically is the one I'm mm. going to talk about.
1: Can't seem as familiar um, with that name.
0: Well, Ophiocordyceps is the genus, so if you've heard of cordyceps, because people don't want to say Ophiocordyceps, I understand. Yeah. So they infect ants. Um, the worker ants are infected while they're foraging by spores that attach to the ants' exoskeleton. Yep. Yeah. Um, then you know it starts to germinate, penetrate the exoskeleton but they can't the fungus can't reproduce until they grow this large stalk from the back of the ant's head. Mhm. And then the spores can be released from the fruiting body that's that stalk. Um they don't want this to happen in the ant nest because um if the ant dies in there, the
1: other, ant the other, ant other ants are, are going to take it out. Yeah.
0: So they don't want it to happen there. Okay? Um so the fungus is going to make the ant display these irregular movements because a lot of these ants normally are actually high up in the trees not on the ground like we think of them these are tropical ants
1: okay
0: um so it's going to make it like com- body it's going to it body convulsions like random movements jerky movements it's going to make it fall down to the ground that's the goal here um then the ants can start climbing again until it gets to a specific height and it's almost always right around 25 centimeters tall for this species of ortho okay um 25 centimeters high it's going to start displaying a death grip behavior, which is a whole suite of behaviors that surround locking its jaw onto vegetation vegetation really hard. Yeah. Um, but they don't lock onto any old leaf. Specifically, they find a leaf and they lock down right on the vein and the leaf has to meet certain criteria like, you know, direction and temperature and humidity all have to be appropriate for, I'm assuming, the fungus's needs. Yeah. So after several several days of the ant being locked on to here, the fruiting body is going to grow from the ant head, rupture, and the spores get to be released. And they're going to call infected ants zombie ants because that comes up like five times in this podcast. They're all zombies because they don't have control of their own behaviors. Um, So researchers found that uh, this, like, I'm wandering erratically, okay, now I'm doing a death grip, pretty much happened... Right around solar noon, like synchronized with solar noon. Oh. All the time. Okay. And they do not know why.
1: Okay. So cliffhanger, got it.
0: Yes. Um, the last thing we'll talk about is a fungus called Pandora. Hmm.
1: It's also, you know, a place where avatars live.
0: Yeah. Well, I feel like Pandora is a very often used sci-fi name.
1: It is. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So, the genus Pandora, um, these funguses turn European Formica wood ants into zombies. Also at specifically distinct times of the day. Hmm. Don't know why. Um, so basically, it, it's a little different because they don't, Pandora zombies don't produce those fruiting bodies, those big stalks that come out of the head. Um, but it's very similar. And the crazy part about that is that the last common ancestor of those two funguses Lived more than five hundred million years ago. Wow! So they don't think it's related. So they think it that they independently evolve these these traits. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, with Pandora, uh, the same thing. They climb up vegetation. They lock their mandible down, and then they die in that biting position. Um, and these. Pacific fungi need relatively high humidity. So, that's we know that is one reason they send the ants out of the ant nest because that does not have the right, right. Um, moisture, that type of thing. Yeah. So, very cool. T- two funguses, fungi that do, that do that behavior.
1: Strange. Fascinating, but. Nature
0: wow. is strange. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, that's all I have for you today. Droned on for long enough about parasites, but they're pretty cool.
1: They are. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, I would like to remind everyone that we have an email. Uh, it is teachme something four. that is the number four at gmail.com. If you want to just suggest a topic or say hi or correct me or, yeah, anything Whatever. like that sounds good. Sounds good to me. Um no, no idea what I'm talking about next time. Actually, I think I do, but I forget. So, same same effect.
1: <laughs> yeah. Similar, similar. It's a
0: surprise, is what I'm trying to say. Good. Yeah, but I do hope uh, hope you tune in. Can you say tune in? Is that old-fashioned? It's not a radio show. I hope you could. listen again in two weeks is what I'm trying to say. Okay.
1: Or if you have a backlog, next. Listen next.
0: Listen as much as you want. For Absolutely. sure. Uh, so thank you everybody once again for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: And I hope you learned something new.